Hey, what is up, everybody? This is Rob Rivera. And this is Rob Rucha. And you're listening to the Robcast Podcast. 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 All right, so we are rolling, and this is season three of the Robcast Podcast, uh, first season of a new decade. Yes. And uh, this specific episode is a uh, overload of Rob's as uh, as we started last season as well this way we have uh, another Rob as our guest and who is our guest today uh, Mr. Rob Flynn from uh, the band Machine Head which I'm sure many of you know out there uh, I've known Rob for a long time uh, we go back I think to 1997 and uh, he also goes with two B's in his name right that's the reason I have two B's yeah that's I said it know my secret I have two Bs because of Rob Flynn, and uh, was very excited when he agreed to do this, and, and we actually talked about it when I agreed to do his, and it was a even swap, and I think we're going to have a pretty awesome conversation. As many of you know, Rob, a uh, very outspoken guy, and uh, so we're going to probably chat about a lot of cool stuff, so let's get him on the phone. Yes. What up? <laughs> Mr. Flynn, how you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. I can't hear you. You can't hear me at all? Uh, just barely. Are you on uh, your uh, speakerphone or you have earbuds? Okay, hold on. Hold on. Okay, here we are. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. How are you doing today, sir? Yeah, we're doing it. I'm doing good, man. How are you? Not too bad. I was just, just telling my partner here, Rob, which, by the way, we're all Robs on here today. It's an all Rob episode. Does, does the other Rob have two Bs at the end of his name? No. No, unfortunately. Uh, I know. He does not. Damn it. That's what makes us different. It's like we couldn't have too many. Got Rob and rob a Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, told, I told Rob Rivera that he should have added a third to his name to kind of one-up me <laughs> yeah maybe maybe i can do that in in the new year that's my new stage name <laughs> well rob I, I, yeah, I was telling uh my rob that i did your podcast and the opening question that you asked me was the most throw me off my game question <laughs> i've ever expected in my life and i had one set for you but I decided not to do it unless you want me to do it. I, you don't need to ask. <laughs> this okay. is your podcast. Okay. All right. <laughs> so does Rob Flynn enjoy a good rim job? I, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll be straight. It's been a long time since I had a rim job. <laughs> but I, I love it. But I have, had, I have had, you know, I don't mind a quick little swab. You know, something like that. I'm okay with that. I love how detailed. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it to linger down there for too long. I don't need. I don't need her to. You know, I'm not trying to get cleaned up or anything. But you know, a nice little. Oh, okay. I'm okay. I'm all right with that. Okay. Okay. So it's been probably decades, though. Just so you know. Okay. Well, I guess there's nothing. Probably wasn't even. It probably wasn't even with my wife. I think she's been (laughs) pretty staunch in her. <laughs> her, her lack of support for well, rim jobs. Uh, well, I'm glad we got that. Which question. is a sad state of affairs, Rob. <laughs> I'm glad we got that question out of the way. 
Um, so, dude, I mean, I've been following your career. I mean, God knows how long since uh, the early Bay Area thrash days and when I first heard about you and violence and whatnot. And so I've always asked this to people, like, what was the band? The What was your, you say, hey, that's my band. Like, for me, it was Rush. The band Rush is the one that brought me into music, you know, that I really wanted to be, you know, listen to music. And still to this day, one of my favorites. What was the band for you? Um, well, I mean, my early musical stuff would have been like the pop stuff I heard on the radio and, yeah. and probably the Beatles, but I, I always say the band that kind of, you know, that was just me enjoying music and listening. And, and look, even when I was a kid, I always wanted to be on stage. Like I was always going out for the school play. I wanted to be the main guy. I wanted to, you know, I was always going out for the talent shows, singing disco songs or whatever. But the, the band that like came along and kind of flipped me on my head and made me want to smoke weed and have sex with girls and get snow blind and all that stuff was Black Sabbath. Sweet. That was That was the band that... You know, I just it kind of came about. It kind of came about at this kind of perfect time in my life where um, my family had just moved from San Lorenzo, and uh, we moved to a, a suburb called Fremont, which was about fifty miles away from kind of San Francisco, and you know, which back then, you know, which might as well have been the middle of fucking Nevada. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, you know, it was a, it was a big change for me and I was just becoming a teenager so you know I lost all my friends and uh and I I was I was really into jujitsu at the time I had been taking jujitsu and my my sensei was this guy Wally J who was this amazing super inspiring uh just you know pretty pretty well respected in the industry and you know I I never really got into the traditional sports. So like, this was the sport that I got into, you know, like I would get there, you know, half hour, 45 minutes before class, I'd stay 45 minutes after and spar with him. And, you know, he was always just like, you strong, strong, like bull. You know, <laughs> he, he really, he like, he gave me a lot of confidence. And, um, and so when we moved, we tried, my dad, you know, did his best to kind of get me there, but it was just such a far drive and where we yeah. were coming from now is just too much. And so I switched and I went to a different sensei, uh, in Newark, which was, uh, and at the time I was 13. And so I was 13 and now I'm sparring against kids who were like 14 and 15, which doesn't sound like that big of a difference. But it was like I was still a gangly kid, and these are dudes who were turning into men, you know. And I'm like, and they just fucking crushed me, you know. Like, and so I was at Orange Belt at Wally J's place, which is about halfway, and they demoted me. The sensei there demoted me to a yellow belt, and I was super insulted, and I was just like, "Fuck this dude!" So <laughs> I, I quit. I quit jujitsu. You know, I think a couple of days later, smoked weed for the first time and then heard Black Sabbath the first time I smoked weed. <laughs> like my friend was playing Black Sabbath and I was like, that must have was, been quite the experience. I mean, it was it was scary. Like it was terrifying. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go to hell if I keep listening to this shit. And I like I asked my friend to turn it off. I'm like, dude, can you turn this off? And then the next day we cut school and we go back and smoke weed again because his dad smoked weed. And so we were just stealing his dad's weed. My friend, my friend's name was Elvis, by the way, which is hilarious. His name Sweet. was Elvis, for real. And uh, and I smoked weed, and I was like, 
put on that Black Sabbath again. And so he did, and we listened to it, and he played the song Paranoid. And I just remember the lyric going by, make a joke, and I will cry, and you will laugh, and I will sigh. Happiness I cannot feel, and love to me is so unreal. And I just remember being so fucking high and listening to those words and going, God, I have never heard anybody sing about such dark, depressing shit in my life. This is fucking incredible. Like, I have to fucking know everything about this band and from that point on i just dove headfirst into black sabbath yeah to, i always tell people that the intro to the song black sabbath is still the scariest intro i've ever heard yes there's nothing so and then when the guitar riff comes in it just even it's just like a horror movie you know it's <laughs> how many how many bands have copied the bell <laughs> at the beginning of their song uh many you know quite, I mean? quite like, a few just, you know, fucking hell's bells for whom the bell tolls. I mean, they set the standard there. No yeah. one had done that. And it was killer. I mean, it's still, the bell still rules, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, have I mean, you ever put a bell, have you ever put a bell at the beginning of a non-point song? Not at the beginning, but at, uh, on an accent in the verse I did. Okay. And it's, it, it, was like, it, was, it, was, it was like a boxing, a boxing bell. It's okay. Like it says, oh, uh, right, right. That, 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 that's about it in a boxing bell so i'm trying to it's, think if we have i don't think we have no i don't know i know i like looks a kill by barley cruz got that bell there in the verse right that that's that's in the i think that's the last bell i kind of heard <laughs> i'm not sure or maybe it was metallica or hell no event sevenfold had a bell okay i haven't heard, I, I haven't heard that but uh i mean black sabbath so obviously you transition like most of us did you know, we went from Sabbath to Judas Priest to Maiden to Motorhead to like more of a punk scene. So, when when was that shift for you? Uh, the shift happened in high school. Uh, I met my friend Jim Pittman in art class, and he was he was really into the underground stuff at that point. You know, and at that point, I was going into the underground stuff, you know, like I had heard the first Motley Crue record, which at that point was still relatively unknown. And, uh, I was into that. And, but he was, he just opened me up to a whole like world that I never knew, like imported music. And, you know, he would go and collect, uh, albums from all these metal bands from overseas and this was kind of like the beginning of the speed metal scene you know like except yeah. restless and wild and raven and stuff like that and so and motorhead you know like you said and so that was kind of the the big transition but then he started he was a he was also a tape trader i was never a tape trader he was the tape trader and we kind of you know i got my i got fed from him but he got a hold of the metallica demo no life to leather so, yeah, the No Life to Leather yeah. demo, and and then got a hold of a bootleg. I think it was kind of like all in the same time, like, and uh, we were like, "Holy shit!" And then they moved to the Bay Area, and we were like, "Oh my god, this is crazy!" Like this fucking band just moved to our city, and like we were freaking out about it, and um, and we were still too young to go to the shows, but we were listening, and you know, for us, like I said, I was in Fremont, so it was you know, it was a long you know, BART train subway ride to any venues, and so. Uh, we we were just listening to it and that was like the metallica metallica live whiplash like one of the first times i ever got drunk like drunk drunk me and him like walked around we were just blasting this live bootleg of metallica playing whiplash and we were just it was just the heaviest fucking greatest song we had ever heard and it was so at that point that was where 
Like, and, and you know, for us, it was such a, you know, Black Sabbath, like Ozzy was already on a solo career. And I loved Ozzy too. You know, yeah. Randy Rhodes was a huge influence on me. You know, all the early Ozzy stuff was great. So by the time I got into Black Sabbath, Ozzy was already on a solo career. Okay. And so this was, you know, not, to, not that I thought Ozzy was old, but this was new and this was young and this was like a whole brand new thing. You know, so when, when we were listening to it, it was like, oh my God, these guys are only like a few years older than us. You know, so it was, it was like, I had a, like a deeper connection, I think. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, uh, now up for debate, did Metallica do all this stuff first or was Exodus right there with them? Exodus was right there with them. And obviously Kirk Hammett was in Exodus. Yeah. And, you know, with Gary Holt and, uh, you know, as legend has it, teaching Gary Holt how to play and stuff like that. With which Holt I Gary. just learned actually a few days ago. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> About that interview that he did, yeah. About uh, what? That Kirk Hammett taught Gary Holt how to play. Oh, yeah. I yeah, had, totally. I had, I had no clue until like literally yeah. almost a week ago. Yeah, and so we were listening to the Exodus demo. Like they had the Whipping Queen demo and they had Impaler and they had um, – is it die by the not die by the sword? Die by my hand, which later became Creeping Death by Metallica, awesome. and Impaler, and Impaler also became something else. But uh, so all those, you know, we kind of knew all that stuff. But the radio, there was a local uh, college station here that played metal from two a.m. to six a.m. called Rampage Radio. Ron Quintana, shout out to Ron Quintana, yeah. and we could we could just barely get it in Fremont. I mean, like we had to sit there and stand like a perfect way and aim our antenna, like all that shit. Like you know, we listen on the radio, like the radio radio. Like they had to have an antenna pointed towards San Francisco in order to get this, <laughs> and. Uh, so we'd record these rampage radio things on my, you know, I had like a cassette radio thing and we'd, uh, and we'd just play them back and listen to all these songs. And so Exodus was, you know, they were doing whipping queen, but it was still kind of new wave of British heavy metal. It was still yeah. very much owed to iron maiden and Saxon and shit like that. Yeah. Whereas Metallica, when Metallica came on, it was like, Oh shit, this is like not, this is not iron maiden. This is not motorhead. This is like a new thing. And so, you know, way more metal, way more heavy, faster. You know, I think that they had kind of taken that, that you know, just and you know, made it their own by that point. So, I, Metallica was first for sure. Okay, so right then and there, around these these times, when was you like, you know, I want to be in a band? And was Forbidden your first band? Forbidden was my well. Technically, it was it was the same guys that became Forbidden, but we were called Inquisitor, okay. which was uh, we named it after. Raven did a B-side single with Udo Dirkschneider, the singer from Accept. Yeah. And they put out, it was just a, the B-side of a single, and the song was called Inquisitor. And we didn't even know what the fuck it meant. We were just like, wow, that's a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just, call our, let's just call ourselves that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, uh, and then, so basically, Forbidden is technically your first band. Yes. I okay. start, me and Jim Pittman and I started Forbidden, and we had a few different guys playing in it uh, a guy named Leroy, a guy named John Teggio. Um, you know, our friend Lenny Mendez, we got Russ and then, um, and then eventually Craig was my friend and I'm not exactly sure. I knew Craig because my, the guy who was kind of like my closest friend on my street was this kid named Clement and he went to a different high school than me, but he was, he became friends with the only other metalhead at his high school. <laughs> and so Which and he was like, <laughs> it was Craig. And yeah. so he was like, you should meet my other metalhead friend because you know, this was like before anybody was a metalhead. 
And uh, so we met and we kind of broke down. But Craig was in the band and Craig was a couple years younger than us. So we were like, yeah, you know, wait till you wait till you get up some guitar chops, kid. Yeah. And, uh, and so we started playing shows as Forbidden with a couple of different guys. And but we still had Russ, and Russ was older than us. Russ was twenty one, and he was old enough to buy beer, which was amazing <laughs> because we, <laughs> you know, like we were, you know, four years away from that, and it was yeah. pretty impossible let's for give, us to do it. Let's give the money but to we, Russ. <laughs> yeah. So we practiced. So we, we started practicing. Leroy, our guitar player at the time, he lived with his grandma, and his grandma let us practice in his garage, and um, and we started doing like backyard parties and just you know stuff like that. And, uh, and we were playing, you know, we were playing mostly covers and at that point we were playing, um, you know, we were playing thrash songs. We were playing black magic by Slayer. We were playing a lesson in violence by Exodus. Um, but you know, we hadn't really kind of started doing our own stuff quite yet. And, uh, and we actually got the name. It's funny. We got the name from, there was a Metal Massacre Three. I always forget the name. I fucking I've written uh, I've, ri- I've written Brian Slagle about this a bunch of damn. There was a band. It was the last song on Metal Massacre Three, and they had a song called Forbidden Evil. And we were like, oh, that's a fucking rad name. Like, let's fucking take that. And so I forget what the name of the band is, but uh, we can pull up that. If someone can pull that up while we're I'm, talking here. I'm doing. Is it? Uh, is <laughs> yeah. it? Uh, hold on. Is it uh, Lamort? That might be it, yeah. Looks like if it's the last that. song. It's called First Fist and Chain. Okay, no. Oh, we no. got to get that. No, that's not it. Okay. Because oh, the, the, the song was called Forbidden Evil. Okay, uh, it's not on here. I see Slayer's on here, Aggressive Perfector. Metal Massacre 3. No, I am. That's what I'm looking at. Really? Yeah. Huh. I'm looking at Metal Massacre 3. Yeah. Uh, Let me, uh, shit. Oh, now it's going to kill me, dude. I know. You know what? Let me pull Hold on a second. Keep talking to me, and I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll pull up my text. <laughs> I'll pull up my text from. Um, I'm looking at all the metal massacres right now. All right. Just in really? case it's another one. I'm all the way up to six. So <laughs> the first six, I don't see them. All right. What the fuck is it? One more. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, maybe it was later. Yeah. Anyway. No. Let me see. Let me pull up Brian Slagle here on my text. He always he sends me the name. I ask him all the time. <laughs> Slagle, like, Slagle will definitely know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Let me see. Ah, my fucking guitar. I I just you know what I cleaned out my uh, I cleaned out my fucking text and I deleted everything from like a year or two ago. Anyway, it's on. We'll talk though. Okay. Well, well, now we know it's from a band called. Uh, no, a song called Forbidden Evil. Yes. Okay. So, a song called Forbidden I mean, Evil. Uh, you were not in Forbidden very long, right? I was in Forbidden. I mean, the I I didn't get to the lineup. You know, that I never released a, a record with them, but I was up, I was in them till '86, till oh, the okay. very end of 1986. And so, you know, we did you know the very first shows that we we did with Craig and that kind of the era that became the Craig. Russ, yeah. you know, Paul Bostaff, I got Paul into the band, Paul Bostaff. Oh, you know, Matt Camacho, was he the bassist? Matt Camacho, we got him into the band, okay. um, you know, but, you know, Paul Bostaff, who later went on to play with Slayer, we got him into Forbidden. He was yeah. playing in like, kind of like a glam band, but we were like, you're way too good for this. That, and and uh, he definitely is. <laughs> he's, a, he's, yeah. a, he's a beast drummer, that's for sure. Yeah. In fact, I played Slayer 
for the first time to Paul. I played Rain and Blood to Paul Bostaff for the first time. And oh, at the wow. time, he was like, you know, his family was pretty Christian, and he was like, I don't know about this shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so when he joined Slayer, you know, right after he joined Slayer, we went on tour with them. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> so, I mean... I thought this is too satanic. What the fuck, man? So you started getting into the heavier stuff, and then, and yeah. obviously then the Forbidden. And when was your... And uh, what made you go into Star Violence? Were you looking at something heavier, something more abrasive, or...? So, well, violence was also going at the same time. And, you know, us and for like Forbidden was getting, you know, we were getting a buzz. We were, we had played, we opened for Metal Church at Ruthie's Inn, which is the infamous Slash Thrash Club. So that was at the end of 86. That was actually the New Year's Eve 86. And then we had played some shows with Suicidal. Um, We were opening, but it was opening for Suicidal and Legacy. Um, you know, which we were way into. I think Last Rocket might have been on the bill. We were playing like Masonic Temples and shit like that. Yeah. And so, uh, and then I don't know. I just the Violence guys. I think the Violence guys moved into the Violence guys moved into the, the rehearsal area right around the corner from us. We were practicing at a studio called Fast and Furious Studios, and they moved into a warehouse, which is behind us. And this is just like in the warehouse district in like Newark or free, at the edge of Fremont or whatever in the middle of nowhere. I, rem- I remember so, the warehouse days. <laughs> it, was, it was a great – I mean, it was great because like my, our buddy owned it, this guy Pat Sauger, and he was, he was kind of like the dad to all of us. He, yeah. You know, kind of just oh, – you know, he was an older guy, and he – or you know – probably five or six years older than us and he just kind of looked after us and drove us home and he was an awesome guy and he owned the studio and he you know you could practice all fucking night there like you know the the the, the warehouse is closed and so like we'd go there and start practicing around like seven or eight after we got off of work or got out of school or whatever and then we would just go rage until way late at night and so it was like a party spot like hang spot and then violence moved in around the corner and I remember just like meeting those guys and, and I really enjoyed, you know, like hanging out with them. And I really like, I fucking thought the music was killer. And I loved Sean, like Sean Killian to me, like was just, he was so fucking pissed and furious and just like, it was so, you know, like I was really up into punk rock. So like for me, it was like really punk rock, but the music was super just like great metal, great thrash metal. Yeah. And so I, they approached me and said, oh, we're having problems with our guitar player. We're probably going to let him go. Would you be up for joining us? And at the time, I was just like, you know, I, I was not disillusioned. with I, Me and Craig weren't getting along too good. And I was just like, yeah, it just seemed like a cool thing to do. And so I ended up leaving Forbidden and joining Violence. And you, and you still went to rehearse around the corner? Not now. I think by that point we had moved. Now that would have been <laughs> that would have been a little awkward. I mean, it was a lot of drama. There was a lot of drama, but like yeah. you know, it, it, we I think we moved to Hayward. We we were then practicing in Hayward at that time or something. And it's funny enough, I ended up. So you know, I was, you know, at this point, I'm just like out of my mind, and I'm on fucking drugs, and I'm on speed, and drinking every fucking day, and and uh, you know, my, me and my friend went. And we we end up. We went to go get some beer. We didn't have any money, so we just stole like a twenty-four pack of beer out of a liquor store. And this guy ends up chasing us out of the fucking liquor store with a gun. It jumps in his fucking car and like chases us down the fucking street. And we're like, "Holy shit!" Like not expecting this kind of crazy overreaction for a case of beer. And uh, 
we ended up running away from him and I'm, I ended up jumping over a fence. And as I jumped over the fence, my, my pants got caught on the fence. And so I ended up flipping over and I dropped right onto my shoulder and I kind of, and I kind of fucked up my arm and my shoulder. Like, like I couldn't move anything. I had to go to the, you know, I had to go get a splint. And so this is like the day after I had just joined <laughs> violence. Wow. <laughs> so, so Phil Demel comes over my house, my dad's house. I'm still living with my dad at this point, or just back in with my dad. I just moved in back in with my dad after getting kicked out. And Phil comes over my house to teach me these violent songs. And here I am wearing a fucking sling. I'm fucking hungover. I'm just like, oh my god, like I'm a train wreck. And so I just kind of watch him play songs. And I'm like, okay, like I kind of got this a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was a hell of an intro. Wow, that. <laughs> That's all. Oh my God, your fucking shoulder, of all things, <laughs> what you need, you need all the, you need the top yeah. part of your of your body. Something my arm, my arm, or something. I can't even remember what was broken, but it was like you know I couldn't basically hold a pick. Wow. <laughs> like I had a sling. And, uh, so it was your right arm. What's that? Was yeah. it your? Oh, the okay, the most important exactly. arm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, and how were those early thrash years? I, I remember listening to your. Uh, interview just a few days ago with another Rob from Death Angel, how all the bands back in the day had beef, and and it's like was that really like the case, or was it, was it like a friendly competition thing, or was it more more like serious, like we're we're gonna we're gonna be better than you type of thing? Uh, it was. I mean, it was it was a lot of competition. It was there was a you know it's funny because you know like there's. There's this kind of, uh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah. I'm texting, uh, I'm texting Slagle right now. Oh, hey. I, oh, no, no. You don't have to. <laughs> I like, I gotta know this now. I can't no, hey, no. Hey, Rob, the name of the band is War Cry. What's that? The name of the band is War Cry. Yes, that's it. My, the other Rob did the Google did a little uh, research. research. Google research. Nice. It's on. It's on Metal Massacre. Nice. Thank 4. you. Thank you. Metal Thank Massacre. You. Metal Massacre Four. Yeah. That was gonna drive me crazy. I was like, I know it was on there. All right. Awesome. Okay. War crime. Is that what you said? No. War, war cry, cry. Like crying. A war cry. Yes. War, war cry. That was yeah. it. Yes. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, spe- I. I think. You know. I mean, it was always like that too. You know. Like I. I, I think that there's this. You know, we've kind of glossed over it with history and kind of revised that everybody was like, dude, Slayer and Metallica hated each other's guts, dude. People, I mean, I remember listening to James and Lars go on KUSF drunk as fuck and just rip on them. And like, you know, like Lars was pretending to interview, you know, Carrie King and James was Carrie and he was just like, Oh, you got a lot of upside down crosses. Oh yeah. I like to hang upside down. You know, so, you know, I mean, just like clown them mercilessly, you know, like, you know, you remember like SOD wrote the douche crew about Slayer, you know, like the yeah. track off of the SOD yeah. record, you know, like there was not like there was, not, and obviously Megadeth and Metallica constantly bickering in the, in the press and stuff. And, you know, so, you know, I think that, I don't want to say that that spilled over, but then the, you know, I always considered us like the third wave of thrash. You know what I mean? Like by the time Violence's first album dropped, it was 88, you know, like Metallica was already on and Justice for All, South of Heaven was, you know, just coming out, you know, like it was a, it doesn't seem like a long time, but a lot of music had come out at that time period. 
And um, so, so we were all kind of fighting for, for our little piece of the pie. And so, you know, the kind of the battle kind of went, became between, you know, Testament, death angel, violence, forbidden, you know, that kind of like that kind of stuff, Yeah, you know, all jockeying for our positions or whatever. And uh, who was going to get what shows and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, we were all friends and we'd all hang out, we'd all drink, but there was definitely kind of a, yeah, you know, like there was always bickering. You know so I mean? it's safe to say that Testament won that battle, right? Testament clearly, yeah. I mean, especially <laughs> back then. Yeah, I mean, they dropped like, when they dropped the Legacy, it was just like, oh shit. And we had the demo. We loved the demos. You know, we had yeah. the Zetro, the Zetro demo. Yeah. And we were, and we loved it. You know, so when Chuck Billy came on, it was just like, you know, it was a lot more polished. Nobody had really ever taken, you know, I, I credit Alex Skolnick with kind of bringing that. Ingve kind of you know, sweeping yeah. arpeggiated flair into thrash metal. Nobody had done that. Nobody yeah, he had brought, brought that, that neoclassical in. thing in with a little Satriani in there too. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so that kind of stepped up the game. And then they dropped New Order, and that was it. Like it was just like, oh wow, these dudes are on a whole other level. You know, it was more like simple and rocking and and just great songwriting. And you know, like it was awesome. Then practice what you preach. I mean, I saw them headline the Orpheum in Boston, sold out. Yeah, like no, they I had mean, it, they had the production, they had all kinds of stuff, man. And like I was like, wow, this band is gonna. I to me, I thought they were like the next Metallica, you know, type of thing. For sure. And, I mean, but, they were for sure. I mean, that's what everybody was poising them to be as well, you know, especially with that record. And uh, you know, with New Order, New Order was, you know, I got to give Testament, you know, the biggest shout out. You know, they're the first band to ever take me on tour. You know, they took Violence out, yeah. opening for them for two and a half months in the U.S. And it was, I mean, they were fucking huge. It was every night was just ridiculously packed everywhere. What venues? And, what, uh, what 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 venues? What they were playing on the New Order? I mean, on New Order, we were doing, I mean, it was an extensive tour. So, you know, Boston would have been the channel. Oh, um, that place. You know, we did a bunch of stuff. I mean, Midwest, it was, you know, it was like thousand cap rooms, a lot yeah. of them. You know, in the Midwest, we were doing, you know, in the Midwest, we were doing like rodeos and you know, like, I mean, like, there were some pretty random places. Like, did you do the rave in Milwaukee? We did the rave in, did we do the rave in Milwaukee? Yeah, we probably did. I'm trying to think. Chicago, we did the Riv. I know that. Yes. Right and right next to where we're at Billy, right now, actually. <laughs> yeah, Billy Milano. Uh, M.O.D. played. Billy Milano played. Like, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never forget it because that show that we played on the Chicago date with the Testament tour, Sean got like a crazy ear infection and had like completely lost his equilibrium. And like oh, wow. couldn't stand up because his his like his you know like when you lose your equilibrium you're just completely dizzy yeah. and you can't stand like you've got no sense of balance so he couldn't even stand and so uh, I sang half of the set and Phil sang the other half of the set so violence was you know we did, had no front man it was just he and I singing it and it was probably my, it was my first time singing and playing guitar in front of an audience wow. and. Uh, and Billy Milano, somebody was throwing ice at Billy Milano from the fucking balcony. And fucking, I know he's a strong dude, like, you know, but like, you know, big dude, but like, you didn't realize how strong he was. This motherfucker, I don't even know how he fucking did it. It's like, 
he climbed up the side of the fucking rib somehow to the belt. I want to say like the curtain or I don't know what the fuck. I can't remember it now. I remember watching it, but I can't remember exactly what he climbed. Like maybe there was a bar or something, but he climbed up from the fucking stage to fucking get onto the balcony and went over and fucking it was hilarious because all these people just like see this, you know, big dude coming towards them and they all just spread away and like 10 people just pointed at this one guy like it was him <laughs> throwing the ice like fucking Milano just like beats the shit out of this fucking dude and then jumps back down and fucking keeps on playing the show did uh did, did he did he get in trouble or anything i know this is you know this was 88 so like it was all things go you could kinda, uh, yeah. like you could kind of get away with shit like that and there there you know like there not, was so much. There was so much violence at shows back. Not in today, the day. though. Like, that would never fly today. <laughs> no, I mean there there'd be lawsuits and security and fucking all kind. Yeah, I mean just you know like I, I I think it's hard to like paint this too. You know, like especially if you're a younger person who didn't live through this. But the shows back then, especially in the Bay Area, were so fucking violent. Yeah, I mean just a shocking level of violence that you would never see now. I mean, it was a type of thing, like, I remember the first time that we played Ruthie's, it was like, you know, I, I don't want to say it was like the Blues Brothers with the fucking cage, and as long as you did good, you wouldn't get the beer bottles thrown at you, but like, you know, people would literally, like, if you weren't fast enough or heavy enough, people would literally just walk up on stage and turn your fucking amps off and unplug your shit and fucking push you off the stage. You know, they'd pour a fucking beer on your head. They'd fucking, you know, like, literally dudes would walk up and pour a fucking beer on your head while you're playing a fucking song. Like, fuck you. Wow. Like, it was... That's, that, that's if they didn't like... Was that if they didn't like the band? That's if they didn't like the band, yeah. Holy and fuck. then... You know, yeah, I mean, it was like super, you know, fucking, I remember, uh, you know, in the whole kill posers thing, like if you didn't come in like fucking thrashed out, like you were getting your ass beat, like you were getting jumped by fucking, you know, Exodus had a crew around them called Slay Team Berkeley STB. And these dudes were not, you didn't fuck around. Like they fought anybody anywhere at the fucking drop of a hat. So you came in into a venue and even if you were just a spectator, you had to know the wolves from the sheep, you know, and you yeah. had to take your lay of the land really fucking quickly or you'd fucking literally be getting your fucking ass beat. You know, I remember my friend Leroy, he was the guitar player in Forbidden. He came in and Toby, who was kind of the, the leader of STB and or the de facto leader of STB. Yeah. He came in and he didn't like, he was wearing, uh, I think Kirk Hammett had worn like these Capizio shoes on Ride the Lightning, these white kind of like, they were like boots, but they're, they're called Capizios. Yeah, I remember those. These, kinda, these fancy boots and Leroy was always trying to copy, he was always trying to copy Kirk Hammett or Mike Toreo from Possessed or whatever. And uh, <laughs> fucking, so he's wearing these Confusios, and fucking Toby just comes up to him and looks over him. He's, pretty, he's a pretty tall dude and just spits right on his shoulder. Hey, man, your shoes are fucking gay. <laughs> Take that shit off. <laughs> like, just spits on the dude. He's just standing there. Like, he just spits on him. Like, oh fucking, my your God. shoes are fucking gay. And he did. Like, he took that shit off. Like, oh, fuck, fuck, okay. You know. So the kill so. poser thing, should we give a shout out here to uh, Paul Bailoff for that? Always got to shout out Paul yeah. Bailoff. Yeah, because he yeah. he's the one that was he the one that started that chant on stage. 
Oh yeah, and ba- and Bailoff was the de facto leader of of the STB, you know, like, wow. and he was, he was, you know, people talk about, oh, that guy's crazy. No, this dude was fucking crazy. I mean, like, always getting in fights, always fucking, you know, like, getting the fucking STB to fucking beat dudes up for fucking not raging on, you know, like, they had, you know, circle pits and fucking walk, you know, stage diving was invented you know, it sounds ridiculous to say, but like these dudes invented stage diving. Like nobody was doing this shit until they're doing these, you know, head walks and feet first stage dives. And like, you know, that fucking suicidal dudes came up and saw us doing it. And then they started doing it and shit. Like, like it was insane. Like you'd go to Bailoff's house. I mean, I watched him literally this dude, he was having a party at his house in, in Oakland. He lived in on 49th or whatever it was. This kind of poser dude came in with like, but he, he was like kind of half metal, half poser dude. And fucking Bailoff just fucking grabs a fork and just starts stabbing this dude's arm. Get the fuck out of my house, you poser! Fucking like, just like <laughs> kicks this dude out of like, sta- like stabbing him. Like I'm not like exaggerating. Like stabbing this dude. It wasn't with a knife, but it was with a fucking fork. Wow. It was it was crazy. Like a really violent violent time and and that was kind of where thrash came from you know and like you know it was always about bang that head that didn't bang and circle pits you know kind of started out with head bang and then it just got crazier and crazier and so yeah, i mean uh, a true i say a, a true visual to a bay area thrash show would it be the toxic waltz video no, you know, no. that was a lot. That was later, you know, okay, I mean, by, right. by that point, you know, I mean, for a true, I don't know if there is a true, true visual out there because, you know, this was kind of before anything was really be, other than photos, you yeah. know, like nothing was really, I mean, I think, I think murder in the front row is probably the definitive visual, but it's all photos, you which know what I, I mean? Which like, I have yet to see the movie, by the way. Yeah, and and the photos really, yeah. you know, the book too, the book. Yeah. What I'm talking about. Oh, so, okay. okay. I mean, I think, and you know, by the time Toxic Walls came around, like that was definitely a crazy fucking video, but but it but it had changed, you know, like th- things had changed, and you know, that kind of early craziness wasn't quite as prevalent, and you know, like it, it was different by that point. So uh, you were you did two records with violence, right? Yep, I did three records with violence. Oh, one did. of them that was one of them was never really released. Okay, um, was that toxic? Or it was trace? released a lot oh, later. No, wait, was that toxic trace? Is that, no, is that what you're talking? It was nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. Toxic. Who did toxic yeah. trace? Is that an Exodus song? Mm, I don't know who. I don't know who that is. Okay. Um, so nothing to gain. Was that the one that was never released, or that's, was that released? Yeah, Eternal Nightmare was released. Oppressing the masses was released, and then nothing to gain. I came out a lot later like you're you know it was kind of shelved and then came out after the success of machine head oh, okay so i mean around this time obviously and one thing i really enjoyed on your uh chat with rob uh was that you did not want anybody to say former violent featuring former violence guitar player which i thought was so commendable that you said you wanted to either succeed or fail on its own which, uh, yes. and, and you still, you definitely, that's something you felt really strongly about, correct? For sure. I mean, there, I mean, it was told to every single promoter, to every, you know, every flyer we ever made back then. Like I, I really did 
you know, I never wanted to be accused of riding on someone's coattails. And I wanted, it, like you said, I wanted it to stand or, or fail on, on its own merits and not have any assistance from anything. And so, you know, when we, and we stuck with that, we stuck with that all through, you know, even like when Roadrunner signed us and, you know, they, they wanted to include that, you know, just as a, as a selling point. And I was like, no, we're not including that. Like, this is going to do what it's going to do based on what machine head is. And, you know, if people figured it out, sure, you figured it out. Cool. But, yeah. but it wasn't going to be a marketing point ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew it because I guess, you know, it, in reviews, they would mention your band's name, you know, uh, your old band's name. And then, uh, so I, I saw that, you know, that was my main interest, basically, because I was a violence fan. And you hear a release, uh, which actually we just did an episode of top five favorite debut albums. And uh, Burn My Eyes won. My. That, was, that's been, that is my top debut album of all time. Wow, that's and, amazing. And, and it was Kill Em All until I heard Burn My Eyes. And, Holy shit. And, and, I say, and I say that, and with the most praise, I mean, like I said, that record still, I still, I listened to it the other day. I think I sent you a picture of me playing the, or a video of me playing the Right, vinyl. right, the vinyl, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I record still speaks to me, and, and we'll, we'll get into the reunion, you know, but um, now, you know, the success of Burn, I saw two shows on that, or maybe three, no, I, think, I don't remember, I saw you guys with Slayer and Biohazard. Then I saw you with Stuck Mojo. I don't know if it was around the end. I'm not sure how close those two shows were. But uh, how surprising was it for you? And how like how did you feel like coming from a, a, a semi-popular thrash band? I mean, everyone knows violence. You know, like whoever knows thrash knows violence. And be able to succeed with Burn My Eyes with all the tours. And looking back at it, how did that make you feel? Like, you know, wow, I did this myself. Um, well, I mean, you know, violence did, did well in the Bay area, but outside of the Bay area, we never, like, it just didn't click, you know, especially back then, like people, you know, you either hated Sean's voice or you love, or you love Sean's voice. And while I loved Sean's voice, most people at the time did not. And, you know, it was, especially as it got closer and closer to the nineties, you know, that whole kind of generational shift, black album, practice what you preach everything went a different way you know and it's like if you weren't singing like you nobody was paying attention and and, and john didn't sing and so you know with with machine head you know i had very low expectations you know my uh our i mean our goal back then you know, and I remember, I, I mean, we actually talked about this. I think I even wrote it down at one point. You know, my goal after we got picked up by Roadrunner was I want to sell 20,000 records worldwide. And I want to open the Slayer show at the Henry J. Kaiser in Oakland, which is the big uh, kind of, it's like the small arena, at, yeah. uh, which is where Slayer had played before. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the record dropped and it just, especially over in Europe, it just fucking exploded, you know, like it just it came in in the top 20 in the charts, which back then was, you know, massive and you know, way more important than coming in the top 20 in the charts nowadays. 
And, you know, over here in America, it was, you know, it did 1,100 copies its first week. You know, it, it didn't chart, like it didn't, you know, it didn't even chart on the two, the top 200. Um, you know, so it was like a different vibe. And, and, and America had changed. You know, there was no Headbangers Ball. Most of the magazines weren't really, you know, catering to metal, certainly not this type of metal. And um, and so, you know, it was it was... It was rad to go, you know, so we opened up for Napalm Death and Obituary on our first tour here, and, and, and no one really cared. You know, we had a couple good, you know, holdouts where we had some great markets, but, you know, for the most part, we were not heavy enough <laughs> for the yeah. Obituary. Yeah. <laughs> we were not heavy enough. You know, Burn My Eyes wasn't – there was too much singing for the Napalm Death Obituary crowd yeah. on that, which is kind of funny when you think about it now. Yeah. But – uh but over there, man, you know, it exploded. And so Slayer tapped us to support them over there. And it was like, it was a dream come true. Um, it made the rest of the Napalm Death obituary tour a little awkward because all three bands were up for that slot. And then, um. you know, and then we got picked. <laughs> you know, we're opening, <laughs> we're opening this fucking tour and we get picked. And then, you know, the two headliners who've got obviously many more years on us don't get picked. So it was, it was a little awkward there for a while. But, uh, but it was it was incredible. I mean, it was going over there was you know it, you know it was my first time leaving the country. It was a dream come true to open for Slayer. I mean, they were already my favorite band. They were already the band that I had seen more times than any other band. I used to drive all over California to catch Slayer. You know, we, if, you know, there was a couple times when violence played in the same night as Slayer. And so we went and saw them, you know, so it was, it was a dream come true. And, you know, just to be able to watch, you know, something like 88, you know, free Slayer shows yeah. <laughs> for free yeah. <laughs> was amazing because and, I lived, what, what, I lived what, every what, one of those records. That, what record were they on when you did the tour? This is Divine Intervention. So the record after Seasons in the Abyss. So, and they and, just got and, Paul Bostav. Paul Bostav, okay. Yep. Okay. So, would laugh. so I'm assuming those uh, were pretty raging shows, huh? Oh, they were fucking, it was crazy. I mean, there was huge shows. And you know, at the time, Slayer was kind of like in a, you know, Slayer's always had an amazing career, but they were kind of in a dip. You know, people were very unhappy about the fact that Lombardo left. You know, you know, it had been it had been almost a five year break between albums, and so many people were kind of, you know, they were, you know, Slayer was in a little bit of a valley. So getting Machine Head was a smart move because it kind of like made them cool. Here's the hottest band overseas right now, and a hot band in, in the U.S. and um, you know, so they, you know, they were they were appreciative of us being there, and you know, just the fact that we were just all diehard fucking Slayer fans, you know, I think <clears throat> made for a great vibe, and so we really rode down with them and had a great time. I mean, it was a great time. I mean, just a fucking amazing experience, and you know, I will forever be grateful to Kerry King for taking us out on those. You know, they took us out to Europe, and then they took us out again in the U.S., and it was, you know, I mean, he's basically responsible for launching you know machine head's career and, and i'll always be grateful for that you so, know he did so he did so much for us promoted us i mean just the dude was amazing so basically opening up for slayer i mean machine head still does insane business in europe and i'm assuming that that was the tour that kind of just exposed you and was able to give you a career in europe yeah for sure 
Because I know a lot of bands, when they go over there, they open up for someone. If you connect, then you're headlining forever. You know, yeah. like, like, and the, which, well, that's really, I've seen, the, I mean, I saw the latest pictures from your tour last year. It seems like you have not lost a step and, and, and in that, you know, in the European market, you know, and so that's cool. I mean, Slayer has, I mean, helped out a lot of bands, you know, they're, they've still, sure. they're even ending their career with insane sold out shows. <laughs> that's yeah. great. That's great. So, um, now, I mean, uh, all these years later, you are one guy who has gone through, like, non-point, many lineup changes. And <laughs> one thing that really caught me in that interview with Rob is that you told me you had auditioned a drummer that, uh, that you told Rob that you auditioned a drummer that kind of knew Slayer songs. And you're like... Oh, right, right, right. And, like, and so how, imp I mean, honestly, like, I would have to agree with you, you know, like... Not knowing a Slayer song and pretty much in the genre that you're in and the genre you've been involved in is kind of unheard of, you know, so for a drummer. I think every drummer kind of wanted to be Lombardo, wanted to do that double bass break in Angel of Death right? or, or the, the Phil and Warren symbol. So did, did you really, like, actually say that, like, you know, you don't know Slayer songs, you can't be in here. Like, is that, that's, was that your mentality? No, like, I straight up said that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it, it was funny because he, he was a great drummer, like a really great drummer, solid, you know, he was a good guy. He came over my, he was, it was between him and my previous drummer. And, uh, and we were, we were having dinner. I brought him over to the house. We're drinking beers. We're having food, you know, we're having a good laugh. My wife loves him. She's like, Oh my God, this guy's awesome. And, uh, and then I'm like, I'm sitting there hammered. I'm like, all right, tomorrow we'll go into practice and, you know, we can jam on some, you know, some angel of death or some rain and blood or something. And he, and he kind of stopped and he, he was quiet for a second. And, and then he's like, yeah, he's like, I, I, I think I know those. And I was just like, uh, I was like, you, you think you know those? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, even in my drunken state, I'm kind of like, wait, you know, wait, what? Like question mark over my head. And, and he's just like, yeah, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a quick learner, you know, like I can, I can, I can get those, you know? And I was just like, you can, you can get those. I mean, like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, and he's just like, well, you know, yeah, like I can, I can figure those out. You know, I was just like, have you not heard Angel of Death or Rain and Blood? And he's like, oh no, you know, I, I've heard them, but you know, like, I just, I just don't know if I, I know them very well. And I'm like, wait, 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 you don't know what I'm talking about when I say we can play angel of death or rain and blood. And he's like, you know, and it kind of just like, it kind of got awkward <laughs> it got wow. like quiet. And, and, and literally in that moment, I was like, yeah, no, like there's just like, you, you have to have had lived and breathed this shit in order to, to do this, you know, like the, you, you, sure you could go learn, how to play angel. And there was no doubt in my mind that he could go and learn angel of death or rain and blood and, and be able to execute it. It's, it's, it's not about being able to play the notes, you know, yeah. Slayer Slayer had to have come along at some point in your life and, 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 you know, darkened your soul <laughs> you know it had, it had to it had to have changed the way you viewed music the way you looked at life you know it just you know it was so you know 
that you know Slayer, as well as all the thrash metal bands, you know Testament and Metallica, and you know like they had such a powerful effect on me. It it literally transformed me, you know, to a different person and made me look at life in a whole different way. And and my thing was like, if you didn't experience that, where are you going to pull from when we write a song together? You know, where are you going to, when I go do a Lombardo roll, you would know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yes. He wouldn't know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, this, this isn't going to work. Like this ain't going to work. Wow. <laughs> that's, you know, and another thing too, uh, you know, that we and had, because of, and that's, and he didn't make the cut because of that. Yeah, that and, was it. and you know, as well that we had a out with us on, uh, yeah, that's filling, awesome. Filling in for a tour. And then Sean Glass, which we both know, or resident Chicago metal guy, uh, mm-hmm. uh, with the, all the info. <laughs> uh, yeah. Has, uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, all the gossip. All the gossip. Shout out to Sean Glass. Shout out to Sean Glass. Um, shout out to Aru. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, I was saying, you think Aru can do it. So he told me, hey, he passed the Rob Flynn test. And I'm like, Okay. Nah, yeah. I'm like, so what is the Rob Flynn test? Yeah, I don't know. You know, looking back, <laughs> looking back, Aru, you know, we, uh, Aru passed the test for, you know, different reasons, but Aru was good, man. Like, I, you know, like Aru, you know, people shit on Aru all the time, and it kind of, it kind of annoys me, man, because he really did bring some, some great shit to the band, you know, some st- staple live songs that we still play. And, you know, he was a fucking solid guitar player. I just think that, you know, and he was like a le- and Aru, what a lot of people don't understand is that Aru was a legit thrash death metal dude. In fact, he was more of a death metal dude. You know, he came up, you know, the reason that we got him in the band was because he came up and his, I used to love his old band. They relocated from Las Vegas. The Horde of Torment, to, right? The Horde, the of, Horde Torment. of Torment. Yeah, the Horde of Torment. I they had that vinyl, Michael, uh, their manager, Marco Barbieri. I fucking loved the Horde of Torment, dude. It was such good death metal. It was like one of the first death metal bands that I really like got and dug and, you know, got into. And so for me, that's, that's the Aru that I new you know what i mean like the aru that people saw wearing you know the fucking ninja outfit and dread like you know that was kind of an aru that that was later on but you know the aru that i met and hung out with and kind of was became friends with early on was death metal aru you know so (laughs) so that's where that you know that's where that came from and i'm i'm dude i'm super happy that you got him you know to do those shows with you it's fucking great he's a great dude like fucking i'm sure he killed it for you yeah, he did great, man. And, and and I mean, he that one one I will say I've never seen nobody anybody play guitar as much as that guy. Like he had the guitar on before the show, on days off, like going through the stuff, you know, like going through our songs with the uh, iPad, his Spotify on, and all that stuff. And one thing I really he was fun to tour with. He was such a good dude, soft spoken guy. Like yeah. I, I never saw him mad. Or anything. It was like it was so weird because I'm so used to you know somebody losing their shit. You right. know, <laughs> you know right. so, like somebody's gonna get mad, and you you know you're gonna get mad. There are things about touring that sometimes annoys you, you know. And, and yeah, so for sure. I, I never saw him get mad, and he was just so soft. He was an introvert. He really spent a lot of time by himself. He would just go off on days off. He'd go shopping. He'd come back with sneakers or something, you know. <laughs> so like, it, it, but he was a fun to tour with, but. The, uh, uh, Sean Glass told me the, the guitar test, you know, and I'm like, I was wondering what the guitar test was, but um, 
that's cool. I'm, I'm very happy, you know, that he got to do it. And because he was doing nothing at home, was just chilling. So it's okay, let's do this. And but uh, how? I mean, how have you been able to? I mean, mentally changing members, like in my situation, has been you know, it just fucks with you. I think you know, like. Gotta have to start to learn a whole new thing, learning a whole new person. How you've been able to persevere through all that? Um, I mean, you know, it it really, you know, I I know that people say I hear this a lot. I get this question a lot. Oh, you've had so many band member changes, and and I, I'm not, I'm never going to sit here and say we haven't had band member changes, but you know, we've had six band member changes. Uh, in in 27 years yeah you know, so 27 years is a really long time you know what i mean like mm -hmm. we started and we started in 91 you know it's 2020 right now so it's it's a little um you know i think it's like kind of the easy thing to exaggerate and it kind of it, it it makes a story of like oh there's always chaos in the lineup but it, you know like you know, there's been many times when we've had a perfectly stable lineup for seven to ten years, and 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 nobody ever comments on that. You yeah. know, and and it, and it, the way I look at it, you know, even the Beatles couldn't. You know, ten years is 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 what most bands can handle. You know, like that. That's it. I mean, Black Sabbath, ten years. The Beatles, ten years. Led Zeppelin, ten years. You know, the greatest bands. Of, of you know some of the greatest bands of all time have only been able to hold it together for 10 years and 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 then broken up you know like just like to the point where they hated each other so much that they couldn't even get in a room and make music anymore and you know i, I always remind myself of that you know that that even the beatles and then the beatles never got back together you know sadly to say now, and Black Sabbath took 37 years, 40 years to get back together. Um, you know, I think that when you look at it like that, it it kind of puts things into a frame of reference. You know, McLean was in the band for 23 years. Phil was in the band for 15 years. You know, Adam, 20 years. You know, these are you know, even Jared now. Jared's the new guy. He's been been the band for you know almost eight years now. And you know, you you. You just got to kind of remember that, you know, bands do go on a lot longer than they used to yeah, <laughs> these days, you know, true. you know, bands never used to last this long. We're kind of reaching this new uh, phase of, of music where bands kind of go on forever, you know, because they become such a corporate institution at some point you know like some bands and i'm not going to say machine heads that but you know there's other bands out there like where there's just so much money being generated that it's not worth it for them to break up even if they hate each other and travel on different airplanes and stay in different hotels and can't even speak to each other and just walk on stage and play and then leave you know that the band still continues because it's just there's so much money being made and you know i don't uh, you know, I don't necessarily have an opinion about that, whether that's good or bad, or I don't know. But, you know, we've never really had that in the history of music. You know, bands either died, OD'd, or fucking broke up. You know, like The Doors, like Jimi Hendrix, like Black Sabbath, like, you know, name any band, you know, like. And so, uh, 
you know, I also take that, you know, the fact that, that I'm still here 29 years later, 29 years later playing music. You know, I've been playing, been releasing records for, you know, 30, 32 years, 33 years or something like that. You know, I, I never take that for granted. You know, I never, you know, I'm always grateful for the fans for doing that. I, you know, people, you know, don't like this record or that record that Machine Head did. Look, man, if you liked a single song that I did at any fucking point in your life, I'm fucking grateful for that. You know, like, that's a huge accomplishment for any artist that even one song I wrote had some fucking connection with you in your life. Uh, you know, so whether you liked this or that, it, it, it kind of doesn't, you know, I think, I think artists and even just the music industry in general and just kind of haters and fans, and they put this over importance on, you know, whether they liked the whole catalog of a band or not. Like, look, man, I fucking love Black Sabbath. My fate, like I said, like I started this podcast off, you know, that's the band that did it for me. I still think they've got two or three completely garbage ass records. <laughs> you know, it didn't mean I, it doesn't mean I hate Black Sabbath, but yeah, Technical Ecstasy, Never Say Die, those records suck. You know, like even fucking, you know, half of Sabotage kind of blows, you know, so, but those first five, fucking untouchable like just some of the greatest music ever made you know and and i love that but it doesn't mean i can't dislike some other records in their catalog and it doesn't mean that i don't like them and so you know i think you know what i'm saying when people say this because we get this a lot right like there's always this kind of question about you know oh somebody didn't like your last record you know, people on the internet complained about your, you know what, like, like this, this is the time we're living in, you know, like. People on the internet complain about anything. I mean, it yeah. doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what. The internet record. isn't real. You know what yeah. I mean? The internet isn't fucking real. Like, this isn't life. Like, this isn't, you know, there's a lot more to life than what somebody comments on the fucking internet. And, you know, I, I think it's a. Uh, you know, I often remember that, you know, there was a lot of shit talking about catharsis when we dropped it. Jesus Christ, those fucking tours were the biggest numbers we've ever done across the board, headlining, period, in the history of the band. U.S. tour and the U.K. tour, you know, without, and certainly the biggest numbers we've done just as this evening with, which is what we've been doing for the last six years. And so, you know, it... it you got to kind of just remember that there's a whole lot more to life. There's a, there's a vocal minority and there is a silent majority and you just got to know that. And for me, you know, the reason that I continue on, I guess is I fucking love what I do, man. I, I love playing music. Music is, is such an important part of my life and has been since I was, you know, from my earliest memories and, you know, the shows that machine head has and the fan base that we have and the dedication of the head cases 
is fucking, you know, it makes me, it, you know, it'll straight up bring me to tears sometimes. Like it's so passionate about the music we make and the band and what we stand for. And, you know, if there's only 300 of them or there's 3000 of them, motherfucker, I'm going to go out there and fucking give a thousand percent and kill it every night because, because that's the shit that makes us feel alive. You know, they make me feel alive. I make them feel alive. Like it's this crazy circle of energy and power and communion. And, and that's what it's about for me. You know, that's what, that's what this is about. That's why we stop doing festivals. That's why we, you know, only are doing these evening with shows because we got so sick of the game. We got so sick of playing to, you know, here we are in front of 60,000 people at Name Your Fucking Festival and 59,000 of them could give a shit about our fucking band. They're just there to fucking jump and go, hey, and fucking yada, yada, but they don't fucking care. You know, they don't fucking care. They're a bunch of looky-loos. And you know what? Festivals, you know, all due respect to the promoters that put on festivals, you know, I'm glad that you're fucking killing it. All due respect to the people that go to festivals and have fun, because to me, festivals nowadays are about fun. It doesn't matter what band is playing. It's about getting high and taking selfies and getting drunk and getting laid and jumping around and thrashing and having a fucking great time. And it isn't necessarily about a particular band. And, you know, maybe there is a little bit of like, you know, you win some fans over here and there. But for the most part, I think it's it's more about the audience than it is. You know, like you look at festivals like Vakken, they announce the sh- they put the tickets on sale before they announce the bands. <laughs> you know? Like the band, it, like it's like the band. Who cares who's on? It's going to be awesome, right? You know, and it will be. <laughs> they do that here in the state too, like like Rock on the Range, and they do, uh, they yeah, do yeah, they, they do because they don't fucking matter. You know, there's going to be some band that you like that you know a handful of songs, and you know, I think that when you're the headliner and you've got a song, you know, an album that's transcended, you know, everything, you know, and fucking people know ten of the songs in your set, that's a perfect place to be. Yeah. For me, for me, I don't, I didn't get that connection anymore, and and we made a decision to stop doing it because we just because for me, this is about that connection. That's yeah. all this is about i mean sure i make a living off of do this and i deserve to be paid for you know the work and the music that we make and i think that all bands deserve to earn a living and fucking make money and make shit tons of money but th- that's not the reason that that we do this you know we do this because music is such a powerful force in our lives that, that it makes us feel alive and so we go do it and you know we're about to you know i was just reading this whole thing too I was just listening to this podcast. I actually got to wrap it up. I got another interview, but I'll okay. leave you with this. I'll leave you with this. Okay. Um, it was about how, it, you know, it was a podcast. First of all, it was, it was the Michael Moore podcast, and it was this guy who I can't even pronounce it, but the name of the podcast was I, Let Me Rob You, I'm Woke. And it's, a really, and it's talking about how, you know, Rep- Republicans or Democrats, like, you know, they're all full of shit because it's these ultra powerful corporations that are, are genuinely screwing up all this stuff. And that somehow these ultra powerful corporations have rebranded themselves as the savior of our problems, even though they 
are the reason that we have these problems to begin with. And that, you know, it, and where'd he go? Rob, are you there? Hey, are you still there? Yeah, are you there? Okay. Well, okay. I started getting. Do you hear? Do you hear that voice talking in the background? No. Oh, I've got like. He just got like a message playing back to me while I was talking. So I was like, "What the <laughs> fuck did it just hang up?" <laughs> um, so, um, sorry to lose my train of thought there, yeah. but you know that there that there were that that you know the the people that are most responsible for you know the woes of our societies nowadays. You know, you look at the Sackler family, who owns the pharmaceutical company that created opioids. You know, and they've managed to clean up their image by donating museum wings and through philanthropy and that you know that if we basically if we want to change that we've got to we've got to become actively engaged on a human level you know like we can't just click anymore and you know that somehow all of these social media companies and twitters and facebook and instagram and tiktok and snapchat that by clicking or commenting or liking something that we somehow feel like we've engaged in the world when nothing could be further than the, from the truth. You know, we haven't engaged in the world at all. Like if you want to engage in the world and make some fucking change, you actually have to go out into the fucking world and make some fucking change and, you know, gather with people or protest and join up with a movement that's going to do that, 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 you know, but that we've been convinced that by doing that. And so for me, you know, the machine head live show, a machine head experience, that is that, you know, to me, you know, my goal isn't to get you to like my Facebook page or to follow my Instagram page or to watch my live stream that I'm going to do. My goal is to get you to come to that fucking show and have an experience and have this communion with other fucking like-minded individuals and have the, get drunk and get high and maybe get laid and have fun and fucking be connected with something that's bigger than that. Because to me, that's, that's all we have. And as, as a musician, as an artist, that's what I offered the world. And you've you've done a hell of a job, man, by being able to keep machine head rolling after all these years. And, and these evening whiz have like, not many bands do that, and that was a very gutsy move that has worked out for you. Thank you, ma'am. And, uh, well, I will let you go since you got other shit to do, and uh, I will see you in Chicago, sir. All right. Well, Rob's, Rob's, Yeah. <laughs> good talking to you, man. Thanks for having me on your podcast. No problem, dude, and you take care and stay in touch. All right. Later, take bro. it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. Ugh. That was a lot of knowledge. Yes. That dude's been around, like he even said, almost 30 years of, of doing this. I knew talking to him would be cool. He's got a lot of great stories. Uh, he texted me after. I hope I didn't blab too much. Yeah. But it's one of our longer interviews, for sure, and, and I knew it was going to happen that way because, like I said, he's, he's got such a extensive history and knowledge of just the music industry and everything that has to do with music. He, as you heard, he loves play music he's think past his 50 age i think he's 52 maybe i'm not sure sorry if i didn't get your age name uh correct there rob but uh he's in his 50s and still rocking harder than most young guys you know and and 
became like this entity, this this br- amazing brand that he's been able to keep alive since. Yeah, we went to see that one night with Machine Head at the, yeah, what was it, Congress? Concord. Oh, Concord. Concord. Yeah, at the I Concord. Saw it, I saw that, that last tour, too, at Joliet at the Forge. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing that Which they can that do that. that show actually turned out to be the longest. It was three hours and nine minutes. That's a lot of material. That was the longest, but there was another show on that tour that beat it out. But at that point in the tour, that was the longest. And I actually stayed the entire time. And even went to the dressing room and hung out for about an hour. Uh, well, it doesn't hurt either that the Forge is like very close to my house. Yeah, and it's an awesome venue. As opposed to going all the way to Chicago to the show. But it was killer. Uh, glad that I was able to see that era of Machine Head and see it on the last run. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely excited. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We're going to end it with a song. Yeah, Do or Die by Machine Head. That, that latest track that they wrote. Uh, enjoy this, and we will see you next week. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to the Robcast Podcast. Be sure and subscribe to get notified on future episodes. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Robcast Podcast. And feel free to send us comments and suggestions at robcastpodcast at gmail.com.